we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. So James writes, verse 7 of chapter 5, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. O God, the Holy Spirit, give us hope this morning. Give us help this morning that we may live for Jesus, that we may glorify you, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and enjoy you forever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is coming. Everything will be made right. Therefore, be patient. If this were a baseball game, we'd say that James has rounded third and it's heading for home. Now it's not getting to home yet. Nathan will bring him in to home next Sunday as he brings his seven series from James to a conclusion. But he's on his way there. He's come full circle and he's bringing to a close now everything he's written in this letter. By returning to his opening thought, there in chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In sum, be patient, be steadfast, endure.
And I'm going to start with the application, or at least a word of application. Don't do something impatiently you'll regret, perhaps for eternity. James gives two evidences of impatience. And both of them have to do with, with what we say and how we say it. When I get impatient, I, I, I get rather intolerant and short with others. And I tend to grumble to myself, about myself, but also to and about others. Or in my impatience, I take the short and easy way out of explaining myself by swearing to the validity and the, the rightness of what I just said. I don't want to explain it. I don't want to go into detail about it. Just take it. I swear it's so. I don't know. I'm not accusing. But I do suspect that some of you may have those same traits. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus is coming. Jesus, the judge of all mankind, is coming. Indeed, he's standing at the door, says James. And the danger of falling under condemnation is real. Philip Edgecombe Hughes was a British theologian and Bible scholar you know, 40, 50 years ago. And uh, one of the things he wrote is that the doctrine of perseverance of the saints has as its corollary that it is the saints who persevere. And oftentimes we, we say, well, Rather than the perseverance of the saints, we want to say the, the preservation of the saints. Because it's true, God will preserve his own. He will preserve his saints, his chosen ones, his elect. Here's the question. How can you be sure you're one of them? Now, there's a lot of things we can say, and there's a lot of sermons that have been preached on assurance. But the ultimate assurance is this. We'll know when Jesus comes for us. Be patient. Be patient. Sadly, we all exhibit this unsaintly behavior at times. But look at yours. Examine yours. Is it persistent? Is it consistent? Is it, is it habitual? Look at it in the light of this. Jesus the judge is coming. 
fact that the Lord is coming should be motive for your and my repentance and returning to Jesus this morning and every day. It ought to be the light in which we live our lives. Word of application, done. Second thing, a word of exhortation and encouragement. James gives three examples of patience. Look at the farmers, he says. You know, well, we do have it. I'm looking at a pair of farmers over here. Uh, I've pastored churches. Most of my, well, not most. Yeah, most of my pastors have been among farmers. <laughs> have been country churches or small town churches. I know farmers. I've watched farmers over the years, whether they're growing row crops or, or whether they're raising cattle or chickens or whatever. I've watched them and, and it's interesting. I go to the farmer's market every week, almost. Some of you do as well. We meet there and we have a mini church service there. Generally in Grand and Allison's tent. We have a tent service right there amongst the lettuce and the turnips and all the other things. Nathan has talked about his gardening and trying to convince the kids that there really are carrots on the bottom of those greens that grow up out there. We had a garden for 30 some odd years. Up until I had my heart we had a garden every year. And some of them were pretty large gardens. And you plant the seed or they send out the plants or whatever and, and then you wait and you wait and you wait. And the tomato's that big and it needs to be that big and every day you check in and you go out and you look. And growing under the ground are, you know, onions or garlic or, or potatoes or carrots or we've had all those things, radishes, you know, you know, turnips, all of that stuff. And you wait, and you wait, and you look, and you check, and, uh, and you keep the kids from pulling them too early, and, and all of those things. See how the farmer waits. He's waiting, being patient. It's coming, it's coming. In good time, it'll be here. So you and I are to look patiently for Jesus, for his return, being content with this, that it's all in the Father's timing, knowing it's his plan, working its way out according to his timing, and that it's good. Note also this. The farmer isn't just sitting around. I, I drive by grass just to watch him. You know, he's not sitting on the porch that's well, crops in the ground, we're waiting for it to come up. You know, he's out there every day. He's cultivating, he's fertilizing, he's you know, doing all those things you do, fighting the pests and you know, shooting at the birds or scaring them away and and the deer and the rabbits and all the varmints that come and, and eat all that stuff right when it's ready, almost, you know, the day before it's ready to be pulled or picked or dug or whatever and, you know, some kind of animal or disease has struck it. It's always working, doing something. Fighting those things that endanger the crop 
the harvest. And it's to model for you and me. The harvest is coming. And it's you, and it's me. You see? Let's work at ensuring it's a good one. That it's glorifying to God. And then there's Job. You know the story of Job. You know the backstory to Job. But there's a guy who lost everything. One by one, the messengers came to him. You've lost your oxen, all of them, and, and, and the men who heard of them. And then another one comes right on the heels of that. You've lost all your donkeys and the men that cared for them. And then comes another one. You've lost your sheep. And another one, he hadn't got the words out. Another one comes and you've lost your camels. And you've lost all the herdsmen and the, herdsmen and the shepherds. I'm the only one. Each one. I'm the only one left. That was his wealth. That was his security. That was his future. But then came the crushing blow. The man comes. Says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. What did Job do? What you and I would do? Set into his culture. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground as you and I would do. Then he fell on the ground and worshipped. Would we? And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know the backstory. Satan's engaged in all this. And so Satan meets again with the Lord. And we read then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And there is Job scraping himself in the abject misery. And his wife, his better half, that one God gave him to be his help, his help meet for him. The love of his life comes to him and speaks. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this it says, Job did not sin with his lips. 
I would say put yourself in Joe's place, but it's, it's impossible in it to, to, to try to fathom the depths of his pain and sorrow and suffering on every level at one time. And then there's Mrs. Job. You know, much has been written and said about poor Mrs. Job. And I'm on her side. I mean, I defend her. What had Job lost that Mrs. Job hadn't lost? And she's looking at her husband scraping himself on the ash heap. What she said was wrong. But I understand her saying it. And then he had to contend with his friends and their utterly misguided counsel. Joe wasn't happy with his situation. I don't know how he might have reacted if he read James' letter, that part about rejoice when you experience various trials. But I do know that he knew God had something to do with this. He didn't know the backstory that we know. He knew God's hand had to be in it somewhere. And that enabled him to endure them. And although this can't be said for everyone who suffers on this earth, for Job it can be said, he received rich blessings in this life. Double everything except for the number of children. Double back, plus seven more sons, three more daughters. That's just the down payment of what is coming when the Lord returns. It's a foretaste of what awaits all of God's children as they suffer through this life in this world. And then there are the prophets. <clears throat> Jesus talked about them, remember in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and write, uh, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Don't miss on my account. <clears throat> Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then you read the history of the prophets and read through them and you understand that. There were few prophets, if any, who didn't suffer. And when you get to the book of Hebrews, actually if you're in James, you just back up a book to the latter part of the, the letter uh, to the Hebrews. And you read there chapter 11, you know, the roll call of the faith of the Hall of Faith, or the Faith Hall of Fame, or whatever you want to call it, but there's that record of all the Old Testament saints and the faith by which they lived. And they're there recorded for us to be encouraged and, and motivated by and to stand perhaps in awe of them. And then the writer, I could see him writing, and he's writing all this, and he says, you know, these scrolls aren't that long, and I've only 
dealt with a handful and already left, used up a bunch of this scroll. And so then he writes this. If I can find it. There it is. Some were tortured. Nope, that's not it. This is what it is. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or, or David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, really by resuscitation. They, they were going to die again. But they were brought back from the dead, at least temporarily. Well, it's, they survived. But then he goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Tradition says that's what happened to Isaiah. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, he goes on, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They did all that, but they didn't come to the promise. They didn't get the promise. Since God had provided something better for us. What is that something better? Better to ask, who is that something better? Because the something better is Jesus, God's own Son, come in flesh and blood to live the life you and I can't live, to pay the price that you and I cannot pay, to be cursed and spat on and beaten and hung on a cross. And that was the easy part. To bear our sin and our iniquity and all the unrighteousness and unholiness and ungodliness. That was the hard part. To bear the wrath of the Father that you and I deserve in our place for our eternal Something better for us, Jesus, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, pay attention to therefores, underline therefores, use a highlighter, anybody still uses those things, and then ask the question, what is that therefore? I mean, that's what we learned in Sunday school that day, and we forget to do it. Therefore, since we, you and I, 
are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Abraham, Moses, and all of the others. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What did he get? And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where he's preparing a place for his brothers and sisters join him. Well, so far. Shift gears a little bit. I've been on the phone the last two weeks, fairly regularly, with a dear friend, dear brother in Christ, whose wife died two weeks ago. She'd been sick a long time. They've been married for three years. So we've been talking. And one of those times, early on, he said, you know, it just isn't right. I know where she is. I rejoice in knowing where she is. She was a godly saint of a woman. She's in heaven, she's in glory, she's with Jesus before the Father, I know that. But I also know that I am here, and it's not right. Half of me is gone, and she was torn from me. It's just not right. And he began sobbing, I just broke down. We sat there on the phone and cried together. you know what? He's absolutely right. He's 100% correct. It just ain't right. Nothing is 100% right in this world. Everything is wrong to some degree or other. And it has to do with Adam and Eve. Their disobedience and its effect on every aspect of life, making everything abnormal and imperfect and unnatural, making this life what it is, a veil of tears, where you and I suffer and know sorrow and pain and fear and a lot of other things. But Jesus is coming. That's good news for everyone who believes and rests in him. Does it not? He is coming. Be patient. Endure. For one day, one day, 
sooner than you and I know. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We'll, we'll say together. We will feast and weep no more. Let's pray.